Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, my colleague Nico Safos talks with Mark Thurber about his new book on coal. Mark is an associate director of the Program on Energy and Sustainable Development at Stanford, and Mark regularly publishes on global fossil fuel markets, climate policy, and the integration of renewables into the electricity markets. Coal generates more electricity worldwide today than any other fuel source. While it may have driven economic growth in many emerging markets, the challenge of global coal is that it also comes with high levels of air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. In his book, Mark explains how coal has maintained its place in the global electricity sector and where it is likely to head in the future. Mark and Nikos delve into the politics and economics of energy versus the needs and concerns at the local, national, and international levels. Let's turn it over to Nikos and Mark. Well, thank you very much for being here, Mark. Um, Let's start maybe with the first question. Uh, Why a book on coal? Coal is bigger than a lot of people think, at least here in the U.S. So coal is a little bit under 40% of global electricity, and we still also burn a ton of coal in in the United States, in Europe, in many developed countries. Japan, uh, Korea are huge coal users. So in the United States, it's right now about 30% of our electricity supply comes from coal. It's down from about 50% if you look kind of 15 years ago. Germany, it's it's 35% uh, or thereabouts. So coal is still a, a big contributor to global energy. One of the themes that really comes across in your book, paraphrasing now, is that it seems that coal always finds a way into the system. You talk about the uh, environmental externalities, you talk about health, you talk about air pollution and mercury and, of course, carbon dioxide, and yet countries, as you just said, still use coal. You know, what is it about coal that makes it always able to find a way into the energy system? In short, coal is pretty easy in, in some sense, right? So if you think about what it takes to, to mine and transport and, and burn coal— it's relatively straightforward. So you can mine coal still in primitive mines. So many parts of the world, China and India, there are illegal or informal mines where, you know, it's it's not much more than than people with picks and and you know they're picking up coal. Often those are very dangerous mines as well. Uh, and everything from that to to a very modern you know open pit mine where you're you know you have lots of big earth moving and excavating equipment. So so it's relatively easy to extract. It's relatively easy to move. So coal is most often moved over land by rail, but you can use trucks in a pinch. You can ship it across oceans in, in big bulk carrier ships. And then on the, the downstream side, you can burn coal in relatively primitive industrial boilers all the way up to very sophisticated, you know, high-efficiency, ultra-supercritical coal-fired power plants. But I think in contrast with some other energy sources, it's relatively easy to put that value chain together. So one big competitor of coal for electricity, uh, electricity generation is natural gas, but that's requires much more specialized uh, gas transportation, you know, pipelines or liquefied natural gas that's very expensive. Uh, you have to, to develop your, your 
oil and gas field upstream, and and then you need some some uh, applications to use it downstream. So, so coal, in addition to being really cheap, uh, which, which is a key attraction to being mined in lots of parts of the world, it's just easier to string together that value chain for coal, and so it's as a result hard to get rid of. You talk in the book about the perception of coal as being sort of one of the most energy secure sources. You also have some questions about whether that perception is uh, warranted. So maybe start with the case for coal. How do people think about coal? What what do countries and governments see in coal that is attractive? And also maybe some of the thoughts that you have about some of the things that people aren't getting quite right. Sure, absolutely. So no one seems to worry about coal cartels, rightly or wrongly. You know, there's a lot of coal in a lot of places around the world. The actual, the, the largest coal reserves are in the United States. The Powder River Basin in, in Montana and Wyoming is just a huge coal resource. But there, there are reserves many other places. Uh, the two biggest coal exporters in the world are Australia and Indonesia, but, but there are other exporters as well, South Africa, Colombia, you know, v- various others. So... People aren't concerned about being able to get it. You know, and, and in addition to that, some very large coal consumers have ample domestic resources. So China and India are the two most prominent examples, uh, you know, U.S. as well. So, so, you know, a lot of people have a lot of coal. And if they don't have it, they're pretty confident they can get it on the, the international market cheaply. So a historical note on coal. So back in the 70s, when developed countries, the OECD was facing oil shocks, there was actually a very deliberate move towards coal in the power sector. So up, up until that point, there was still a reasonable share of oil-fired power generation. And so, you know, the, the relatively newly formed, you know, International Energy Agency, you know, their goal was to to sort of stick up for oil consumers of the world. And so they very deliberately laid out the case for shifting power generation to coal. So sort of starting in the, in the 80s, you know, especially in the U.S., especially in Japan, there was, there was a very deliberate energy security-based move into coal. What I found very interesting reading some of those rationales was even back then, there was recognition that this could be trading a, an energy security problem for a climate problem. You know, even at that time, there was awareness of greenhouse gas emissions and that, that CO2 could, could force the climate in ways we didn't like. But, but at the time, it was considered that, you know, we just can't be subject to the whims of, of oil exporters of the world. So every application that we can get off of oil, you know, we'll, we'll do it. And it's harder to get off oil for transportation, but for power, we did. And, uh, you know, a more recent example of, of the energy security rationale and, and a push for coal is, is certainly, you know, China, which has used coal for a very, very long time and is by far the largest coal producer and consumer in the world. You know, they've, they've driven their economy off of coal since becoming the People's Republic of China. And, you know, they've always been very focused on coal availability uh, not being a constraint on economic growth. So, and it was starting to become that in the late 70s because of deficiencies of central planning. You know, they, they weren't having enough coal. And so, you know, China's policymakers pragmatically, you know, kind of did various reforms that made the coal sector over time more, more liberalized and, and improved coal availability. So I think you could certainly argue that 
China very much based its industrialization um, and especially, you know, starting in the 90s, you know, this extremely rapid growth in, in both GDP but, but also coal consumption. So, so I think a lot of countries have, have turned to coal in the power sector as, as the bedrock of their energy security. And so now today you're seeing the next wave of countries that are really pushing to develop. And so coal use, where it's grown more than anywhere else in sort of percentage terms uh, recently in the last 10 years is Southeast Asia. And now even kind of the wave after that, if you look at countries in sub-Saharan Africa, you look at a lot in South Asia, you look at a lot of the lowest income countries, many of them are hydro dependent for their, for their electricity grids. And they see all the downsides of, of hydro, that, that all of a sudden when you have a drought, your, your power system is no longer reliable. And you also see that, well, this is great, but now we really want to grow and we, you know, we don't have the ability to scale hydro. So, so, so that's the case for energy security. You know, if you want to build out energy rapidly at scale, coal will let you do it. There's plenty of coal around the world to last a very long time. So, so that, that's the case. The case against coal being energy secure is really the case against coal overall, which is its environmental impacts. So, so coal is a major contributor to air pollution in, in many industrializing countries around the world. Probably somewhere over a million people a year, premature deaths a year can be linked back to coal and particulates that, that come from coal. Uh, so, so very bad local air pollution problem. And then the most challenging problem to deal with is the climate impact of coal. So, so coal is arguably, uh, well, I would say almost certainly coal is the, the largest contributor to anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions, probably somewhere on the order of 30% of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions come from coal, either in the power sector or industrial sector or, or other uses. So, so sorry, just to continue, you know, linking that back to, to energy security, the, the, the issue is, well, fine, I can build coal power plants today. Those coal power plants I build today will last 40 years, say. Is it really energy secure if in 10 years there's so much pressure, so much recognition that, that climate change, for example, is a huge issue that, that I'm, I'm not allowed to burn that coal power, you know, to, to, to burn coal anymore in 10 years? So that's... You know that that's a worry, right? Is is this really a, a secure choice? You know, if if everyone sees how the climate problem is getting worse. You talk a lot though about the political economy of sort of getting off coal, and obviously in the United States we've seen this very prominently in the last election. Uh, talk a little bit about what you found in your in your research and what you write in the book about sort of how that could complicate the efforts of trying to reduce coal use. Absolutely. So both coal-producing interests and coal-consuming interests are powerful in a number of countries. And just like we saw in the U.S., there are other examples as well of countries where coal regions are politically powerful, sometimes out of proportion to actually coal's involvement in the economy. So if you look in the U.S., I mean, right now, sort of coal miners, coal sector workers... It's a very small share of overall employment. I mean, it's somewhere on the order of 50,000 people you know, working in, in coal. So tiny compared to overall employment. 
But we saw in the presidential election, at the very least, this was kind of a wedge issue. I mean, that that who knows? But it resonated with voters in in Pennsylvania and West Virginia, you know, in, in a certain number of swing states. So it becomes a very potent issue. And it's it's you know, the politicians can say, well, look, you're losing your coal jobs not because of, you know, because coal is not economically competitive. You're losing them because of, you know, the political opposition that values, you know, these amorphous things like climate change more than they value your livelihood. So so that can be a very powerful kind of political wedge issue. And so, so the other examples, you know, a few around the world, Germany, um, the coal belts are, are electorally important. Um, and that's part of why, you know, even as Germany has massively grown its renewable output, it's also stayed very steady with coal. So, so Germany burns huge amounts of coal still. India is another great example where the coal regions are relatively poor, so they don't have a lot of other uh, economic opportunities, and they're also electorally influential. So that's an example of, of sort of the, the political economy on the coal production side, the, the coal mining side. There are also examples on the coal using side. China is certainly an example of this where, you know, in China, a lot of big industry, you know, steel making, aluminum making, these are heavy users of coal. And so there can be this push and pull between the central government in China, which is focused on on environmental issues, which would like to to contain the growth in, in coal use as much as possible. But then the more local and provincial governments see a lot of benefits from local industry that uses coal. So benefits in employment and tax revenue, you know, in, in local economy. So sometimes, at least, you know, to this point, even when the government issues edicts to, okay, we, we have to cap, you know, steel output or aluminum output, we're going to try to contain, you know, those industries and, and all the environmental impacts of them. You know, th- sometimes the the more local governments will turn a blind eye to to them kind of continuing to operate and and continuing to use coal and and to pollute. So, so you can get pushback through the value chain in your efforts to to tamp down coal consumption. You've talked about another pathway to reducing coal use, which is sort of the opposition to building and financing new coal capacity. And you write in the book that. What activists have discovered is that you don't need to make it prohibitively expensive. You just need to make it more difficult or slightly more expensive. So can you talk a little bit about how you assess the overall effort to try to prevent the world from adding more sort of coal capacity? Sure, yeah. So the most successful example that I'm aware of of this strategy of contesting coal in various different stakeholder processes. So the Sierra Club has had a for, for a number of years now in the U.S. A, a beyond coal campaign. And so they've really been very creative. And, you know, we're not just going to say, well, we stop this coal plant or nothing. You know, they, they've had a very sophisticated strategy of trying to add costs, trying to add uncertainty uh, about the future of coal and just contesting coal in every arena they can find, you know, whether it's pushing for studies of what's it going to mean to have increased rail transport of coal to pushing for protection of endangered species maybe that, that are affected by coal. Even to, to arguing that ratepayer forums for, for electricity markets to say, well, this coal plant retrofit 
is much more expensive than other alternatives. Um, and, and so, so you know, at the margins, that can be a very effective strategy. Just, just, just add this, you know, because to the extent that the attraction of coal is its low cost, is its relative certainty, to the extent that you can add cost, you can add uncertainty, you can make the transportation more uncertain, this can help make coal less attractive than alternatives. Now, the one thing I would say about that strategy is it works best when there are alternatives to coal available that are not enormously more expensive, right? And so the U.S., North America is a perfect case for that strategy right now because there's so much low-cost natural gas, right? And so, so really, I think in many ways, the environmental movement has implicitly leveraged that to say, well, look, you know, we, we've got cheaper gas. Like, why the heck are we still, you know, running this coal or trying to do retrofits? It's harder to deploy that strategy in, in places where, you know, the cost gap between coal and, and the next available thing is, is much larger. So, so I think that's, that's a trick about that. So I think the results of that strategy at the international level are more ambiguous at the very least. So there's certainly been a push to, for multilaterals, you know, the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, you know, all those kinds of multilateral players. There's been a push by activists and by, by donor countries to have them not be involved with financing coal plants anymore. It's a little hard to assess, you know, how much impact that's actually had. It certainly had the effect of frustrating potential recipients of, of coal finance because so I was just last week uh, spent some time in Nigeria and and Ghana and the the frustration was was quite palpable just with the sense that that some of these financing bodies or more generally the the developed countries were saying well yes we want you to develop but you can't do this you can't do this you can't do this you know maybe it's renewables only but that has its challenges right i mean renewables are great costs have come down a lot but if you look at you know, so in one of the countries where I was, they were actually having this, so they were very supportive of renewables, but they were saying, well, look, we've got to slow down because if renewables are, are too big a portion of our power supply mix, you know, we're going to have real problems with the intermittency, right, with the power not being there when we need it. So so certainly this multilateral strategy, you know, of, of trying to cut off coal finance, it certainly frustrated countries that, that might potentially be recipients of the finance because it gives them the sense that, that the rich countries care more about climate than they do about jobs um, in poorer countries or even than they do about air pollution in poorer countries. And then, you know, at the end of the day, I think the big open question on that strategy of squeezing off public financing for coal is to what degree is that just replaced by financing from other sources? So to what degree can China fill any gap, you know, that's that's needed? So these are all interesting, you know, open questions. But it is notable that that we're sort of implementing the strategy of trying to cut off coal finance even while we use enormous amounts of coal in, in rich countries still. And the question of substitution is one of the research questions that we're exploring here and, and one of our preliminary conclusions is that China gets more of the blame than the actual capacity that they're building, <laughs> that a lot of capacity is enabled by local financing or local banks or other countries as well. So Yeah, that's very uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, 
Let me look a little bit into the future uh, of coal. And I wanted to actually, before I go into the really tough questions, I wanted to put a little parenthesis on coal use outside of power generation. And you talk uh, particularly about uh, heavy industry. What are the prospects of essentially weaning ourselves off coal in those slightly tougher applications? They are difficult. The prospects are difficult. So one of the most challenging industrial uses to wean ourselves off of will be steel making, right? So so there's a, a coal with particular properties is called coking coal or metallurgical coal. And so that's used in the process of making pig iron, which is then a, a key input to steel making. So, you know, that's the vast majority of fresh pig iron, you know, used for steel making comes from from this use of coking coal. So as far as alternatives to that, there is another pathway to the extent that you can recycle st- steel and, and sort of use like like existing metal that you have. You can bypass that coking coal approach. And there are other methods of, of making, making pig iron, but just to date, they're not quite as cheap or as scalable. So that'll be a challenge. And that for sure, that's something people are working on, but that's that's a big hole to fill. And I think arguably... That could be a more difficult substitution than, than, than substituting coal with other fuels and power generation. So I think that's, that's the, the biggest sort of coal-specific industry challenge. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, carbon capture and storage, sequestration. Maybe we can add a U in there for utilization. There's a quote in the book where you say, the closer CCS came to reality, the less interested policymakers and the public seem to be in the expense and risks that it would entail. So talk to us about CCS and the role it can play in the future of coal. Sure, yeah. This was something where you saw, for example, early, mid-2000s, a lot of attention to this idea of carbon capture and storage, or now, as you say, carbon capture utilization and storage. And so the the theory is pretty simple, right? The idea is that well, we're we're just burning tons of coal. We have tons of coal around the world. Maybe in the long run, it's a lower cost alternative to can we clean up the coal, not just as far as local pollution, but can we capture the CO two so so it stops being a climate problem, right? So how has that gone in practice? So as you were alluding to, it has not moved very fast. CCS. The the place where it's had the most applications so far around the world is not in coal, but in natural gas. So so especially in separating, you know, when you extract natural gas from the ground, some fields have a lot of CO2 that comes with it. So in, you know, separating that CO2 and capturing it. One of the biggest obstacles to CCS for power generation, and especially for coal-fired power generation, is that it's just very expensive, right? And basically, if you think about it, what's called post-combustion capture, it basically takes the the direct exhaust from a coal-fired power plant and captures that CO2, which is expensive, and then then you have to compress that CO2 and, and pump it somewhere underground where it will stay for whatever, thousand years, say. So So all of those pieces are expensive. And so I think there was quite a lot of enthusiasm when it was more on the idea stage of, oh, yeah, this would be great. We can still burn lots of coal and eliminate this climate impact, which which would be great. But once it got close to being something practical, 
people started to look at, well, yeah, the, the capital costs of, of these things are enormous, which is especially unappealing given that the big attraction of coal is it's cheap. <laughs> you know, so, so glomming on some big, although I have to say building a coal power plant is, is not actually that cheap. So with CCS, you're adding an additional huge capital cost onto that power plant. So that was suddenly unattractive as it started to get more real. You know, that basically you're just spending so much money on a disposal problem. Another piece was that in a number of countries, there started to be resistance to, oh, well, we don't want to pump CO2 into some, you know, underground sort of old oil and gas reservoir or, or you know, saltwater aquifer, you know, what, what, uh, wherever, you know, this was going to be put. People started to worry about it, you know, whether rightly or wrongly they, that that was a concern. And so it just was one of those things where there just wasn't a strong political constituency beyond, you know, I mean, obviously the coal industry would love this to happen, uh, but but more broadly, it's it's been tough. Some of the early CCS projects, the results have been mixed. There have been some that have worked out okay, some that have really been fiascos. So it's... Uh, so we'll see. There, there are some technological efforts to to develop kind of next generation CCS or CCUS, and you know I think that's that's worth investing in and seeing if if that can go somewhere because for sure it were, would help if that were a, a technological tool at our disposal. But but so far it's it's been a struggle. So your your book was explicitly not about the future of coal. You said you don't really want to talk about you know where. Is coal going to be in 10 or 20 years? But we have to make some news on this podcast. So how do you think about the future of coal? I mean, at the end of the day, is it still going to be around? Is it going to maintain its share? Are we going to be able to put in place the policies and technologies to reduce its importance of the energy mix? How do you feel at the end of the day about coal? Yeah, right. Yeah, you detected my uh, desire not to be pinned down for for the certainty of being wrong. If I say, well, let me tell you, by 2030, we'll be done, which is almost certainly not true. Okay, so, so you know, the way I think about the future of coal is thinking about different countries and what stages of development they're at. So if you look at the U.S. and Europe, so in the U.S., coal use in the last decade went down 38%. Uh, main, mainly on the back of very cheap natural gas, although renewables are increasingly playing a role as well in, in edging out coal. Europe, between 20, 2008 and 2017, coal use went down 23%. So developed U.S., Europe, Asia. So if you look at developed Asia, like specifically Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, the last decade they went up a modest amount, sort of 10%. But overall, the developed world coal use is going to decline for sure. And, and it's important to note that those are countries where overall energy consumption is, is plateauing to declining. So, so, so that's going to go away in those places. China is, of course, very interesting as by far the largest coal consumer and producer. China is has still over that decade gone up. I think the figure was 18% uh, that, that coal consumption increased. But China's looking at least closer to a plateau. And certainly the central government would like for coal use not to grow very much more because of all its problems. So India, coal use went up about 64% 
in the last decade. Southeast Asia went up 84% in the last decade. So Southeast Asia, so, so you kind of see, you know, these different levels. And of course, if you look at India, if you look at many of the Southeast Asian countries, they still have a long way to go to, to get up to per capita G- GDP, you know, that, that's close to, to sort of OECD levels. So that's sort of the challenge. I mean, people tend to look at India and say, well, this is the country whose coal use could grow more than any other country. So that's going to be an important case. Southeast Asia is the one, the place where there, there are tons of really new coal power plants. So that's an, a big environmental concern because these are, you know, if a coal plant's 10 years old, it's going to probably be running another 30 plus years. So, so those are the sort of stages. So, but then after that, let's look at the, the lower-income countries, right? Let's look at sort of Bangladesh. Let's look at Cambodia, Myanmar. And, and then let's turn to sub-Saharan Africa, right? So, so you know, those are, are countries where they're going to have to develop. I mean, that's going to be the next wave. And, and so the most pressing issue to me is how quickly are those other countries feeling like they have – alternatives whereby coal is no longer the default, you know, go-to for building out their power sectors, right? And so there's a lot of discussion about, you know, cost competitiveness of renewables, you know, and coal and and renewables and other things. And, And for sure, renewables are so much lower cost than they were even five years ago. And it's very impressive and it's a terrific development. But it's still not quite apples to apples when you're thinking about, okay, I need to grow. I want to put in a gigawatt this year and then, you know, two gigawatts next year and then, you know, 20 gigawatts over the next decade, right? So that's just a different kind of scaling problem. And at the moment, the countries in that situation are still viewing coal as this is the only way we can see to do it, right? Because... Even I look at the developed country, developed countries. Well, who has the highest share of intermittent renewables? Well, it's probably Denmark, you know, at 40-something percent wind. Nobody, you know, is running. Now, it'll be really interesting as, as we all try to get closer, you know, as California and, and you know, northern Europe. And, and I think we'll, we'll learn a ton from that. But you can understand, you know, the, the lowest income countries saying, well, you know, I don't really want to be the guinea pig for the one who, you know, runs a 80% plus, you know, intermittent renewable power sector. So, so this is kind of the challenge. I mean, that what alternatives can be offered and, you know, to, to these countries so that they're sort of saying, okay, I, I buy this, right? I mean, this is how I can reliably build out my power sector. And I think the current approach, which is more like, well, you know, coal is bad, you all can't use coal, that's not a very workable approach, right? Because these countries are looking at, look, I mean, we need to give jobs to people. We need, you know, power to be reliable for manufacturing and, and other industries. And so, so, so they need something, right? And right now that thing is coal. And so to me, when I think about the future of coal, is it five years where we're offering something that's that's just as as reliable and good as coal? Is it ten years? You know, is it twenty years? And that'll sort of determine well which waves of development you know are putting in coal plants versus versus something else. And it's a it's a really difficult challenge. And and I think we're going to need 
lots of renewables in, in places. But, but, but that's, I think it's important to take that, that high-level view of this is the coal problem, is can you, first of all, get people to stop building new coal, not by telling them not to build new coal and giving them no other alternatives, but by having them genuinely feel that, that there are other options, that there is, that, okay, you know, renewables through the California and the European experience, they've really figured out how to manage, you know, long-term intermittency, seasonal storage issues, right? And, and so, yeah, we, we have confidence that that, that can be not just a, a supplement, which everywhere it's going to be. I mean, renewables are going to be important everywhere, but can they be the backbone? And that, that's where we need to get. And that's what's going to shape the future of coal. You know, as far as from a technology options perspective, the other thing that is just crucial for this is climate policy, right? And so if you look at cases where if you're not going to have air pollution regulation, but especially climate regulation, it's just hard for, for other technologies, you know, say natural gas or or other kinds of things it's just hard for them to compete with coal until you you know you're really valuing that that climate attribute was that it was that a waffly enough answer on uh, the future but that's that is genuinely how i think about the future of coal so i love it and it's very much it mirrors my own thinking. I think of it as the future of coal really depends on everything else, not coal right right that's a great way to look at it yes yeah, yes right. yes. Uh-huh. Let me ask you one final question. You researched and then wrote a book. What was the more most fun thing you encountered or more maybe the most surprising fact you learned uh, as you did the research for the book? One of the most surprising facts was the prevalence of the coal plus renewables model, which I think if you'd asked me going into this work on the book, I've said, well, you know, this is sort of an anomaly, right? This is crazy. I mean, you have Germany, which has... And so I sort of, with apologies to the Germans, you know, I, I call this the German model of lots of renewables and, and lots of coal. And so why this happened, path dependence-wise, is because Germany had a lot of coal, right? So they had a lot of coal power plants. And so naturally, you know, when they put in renewables, coal was what was, in effect, backing up the renewables, right? So, so, so that was kind of a path-dependent thing. But the more I dug into it, the more I realized, no, this actually could be a path that a lot of countries take. And it seems really counterintuitive because why are we spending something, why are we spending money on sort of dealing with renewable intermittency and, and making renewables cheaper? Like, because renewables are really clean, but then we're, we're kind of losing all our benefits when we pair that with super dirty coal, which is kind of the case in Germany. At least so far, Germany's emissions reductions from, from renewables have been negligible because at the same time they've phased out nuclear. So what it leaves is just, and the coal's just kind of sticking around, although Germany is trying to, to phase out coal entirely by 2038. But, but so yeah, okay, like, like coal plus renewables, fine, it's in Germany. But then you start to realize like, wow, okay, like India's doing it. India is in the run up to the Paris conference, you know, like people were giving them all kinds of grief for their plans to increase coal production, increase coal use. And then they said, well, hey, but wait, we're going to do all these renewables too. And, and everyone's like, oh, that's great. Good job. You know, and so everyone kind of, you know, still the coal is, is the, the backbone of what they're doing. But, but they are doing these very aggressive renewable uh, build-outs, which is terrific. I mean, that, that's, that's really, really cool. But, but again, oh, this is another case of like coal plus renewables. 
And then you start to look at lots of developing countries. So Southeast Asia, right? They're building out coal and, you know, they're building a lot of renewables, right? And so so it, it's sort of, well, why does this happen? Well, I think if you break it down, there actually are some strong forces that push countries in the direction of coal plus renewables. What pushes them towards coal is just that this is still what people perceive as like, this is my easiest way to build out a power sector. I don't need to deal with, you know, all the hassles with nuclear and who knows what's going to happen with that. I don't have to deal with building out a natural gas value chain. And by the way, you know, gas, who knows if it'll be super expensive in the future. So like, hey, you know, I know coal works, right? Like, like China's done it. India's done it. Like we know we can build out power sectors with coal. So, so that's like what pushes you towards coal. And then when it comes to being green and sort of all this pressure, both from the international community, but also like domestically, especially from younger generations, right? Like, hey, we got to be green. You know, no one really thinks about like, okay, I mean, natural gas is a lot greener than coal. You know, it has roughly half the greenhouse gas emissions, like virtually no air pollution. But like nobody really – if you build gas, you don't get any green environmental credit for building gas, right? Because everyone will just look at you and say – blah, fossil fuel, I don't like it, right? So you won't get credit for gas. Everybody hates nuclear. I mean, you know, that's well, almost every country, right? Nuclear just has real public acceptance problems. Although I, I actually wonder if that's turning a little bit with younger generations, at least in the U.S. When I talk to younger people, they're like, hey, like, why aren't we doing nuclear? Like, climate change is a big deal, right? And I'm like, yeah, you're right. You know, so, so that's kind of what you get is if you want the, the green credit, you do renewables. And again, I don't mean to sound too flip. Like, it's not only green credit. I mean, it, it's great because it, it's, you know, I mean, renewables are improving. It's sort of zero emissions. So I, I don't mean to be, like, critical of it. But – but, you know, that's how, that's how you get people to say you're being green. And, you know, still the way people feel like they get the reliable power is coal, right? And so, so I think that's going to be a pathway. And, and exactly to your point, Nikos, about, you know, what affects coal is what happens with everything else. It's just everything else, like besides coal or renewables, are kind of hard, right? So, so we're in this weird sort of world where I think – that's almost going to be the rule rather than the exception in a lot of countries' development is you're going to see a lot of coal and a lot of renewables. But the downside of that is, again, every coal plant we build, that's locking in lots of greenhouse gas emissions for a very long time. So, so I think, well, we should be aware that maybe this is a pathway. And in fact, maybe there's a, a good element of it to the extent that maybe there is something productive about the renewables giving countries a little bit of cover to build some coal. I mean, I think it's it's hard to argue that with all the coal we burn in the U.S., a huge priority of ours should be to prevent Ghana from building a single coal power plant. I mean, that doesn't strike me as right, right? So, so maybe to the extent that renewables get bundled in some of these projects, you can say, okay, well, look, this is coal plus renewables and you know, let, let's accept that, right? And, and let's take the biggest burden of reducing coal use. Let's take that burden in, in Europe. Let's take it in the U.S. Let's take it in, in OECD Asia. Let's not say, well, we did this, but, you know, you guys can never do it. Thanks for listening to Energy 360. There's a link in our profile to Mark's book. And to find more episodes of Energy 360, look on iTunes, CSIS.org, or follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. 